0: Thank you for coming. I'm Jelaine Schmidt from the Religious Studies Department at the University of Virginia, and I'd like to thank the American Academy of Religion for welcoming this special session in honor of the work of Karen McCarthy Brown. Uh, She died this March after a prolonged struggle with Alzheimer's disease, and I know that she lives on in our hearts, uh, a lot of us. Uh, Karen received her bachelor's degree from Smith College earned her master's at Union Theological Seminary, and graduated with her Ph.D. in religious studies from Temple University. Uh, she wrote her dissertation on a, with a structural analysis of Haitian, of Haitian Vodou veves, and after graduation, she was introduced to a Lourdes, a Haitian-American immigrant and Vodou mambo, who was then living in Brooklyn. Karen deepened her field research in Brooklyn among the 70 lois, and that is those who served the loi, and in 1991 published her ethnography that we all know and love so much, Mama Lola, a Vodou priestess in Brooklyn. Karen enjoyed a long career at Drew University Theological School, where she was the first woman to receive tenure. There she mentored many students, engaged in countless conversations with colleagues and local religious practitioners as she mapped the contours of religious communities in Newark, New Jersey. Prior to Mama Lola, when social science methods were employed in the study of religion, this often took the form of large-scale quantitative studies or a reliance upon functionalist framings of the topic. Karen McCarthy Brown's work exemplifies the Geertzian advice that theoretical glosses should hover low over the ethnographic data, and as with Victor Turner's symbolic anthropology, Karen's work makes ritual action central to her investigation of religion. But Karen's work went still further by weaving together ethnographic insight and lightly fictionalized experimental prose to provide historical narrative and by not shying away from analyzing subjective embodied experience. In short, Mama Lola marked and helped to produce the ethnographic turn in the study of religion. It's a testament to the reach of Karen's scholarship that it was a scholar of Islam in South Asia, my good friend and colleague Danielle Widman Abraham. Danielle, are you here? Maybe she's not here. Uh, But it was Danielle that, that first suggested this panel to me having this. And I said, well, of course, uh, of course. And especially in this era in which the AAR program committee has warned us that quad-sponsored panels will no longer be permitted, it is also telling that an array of seven program units came together eagerly agreed on short notice this spring to co-sponsor our conversation today. So thank you to the Religion and Social Sciences section, Teaching Religion section, Women and Religion section, African Diaspora Religions group, Anthropology of Religions group, religion in Latin America, and the Caribbean group, and the sociology of religions group. This is only a subset of the many fields uh, which gather under our big tent of AAR, as our fearless leader, Tom Tweed, uh, described it today. Uh, And I want to thank the panelists uh, who have come along too for their enthusiastic response to uh, the invitation, uh, also on short notice. Um, Many of them work in overlapping areas, which about which Karen taught us so much, among them ethnography, women, gender, and religion, religion among immigrant groups in the U.S., Afro-Caribbean religions, and more. Uh, So we're just going to follow the order that is written in our program. Uh, I've asked our panelists to speak for several minutes apiece on uh, how Karen's work has influenced uh, their own work as it's situated in their field or subfield, what methodological insights Karen's work uh, contributed to their work, and what interdisciplinary bridges uh, did the example of Karen's work uh, help them to forge between their own home discipline and other theories? Uh, so um, I'll get out of the way of the panelists for the constraints of the session, and we'll let them each uh, talk for a few minutes, and then we'll open it up to the audience because we really want to have a conversation uh, with all of you. So um, i turn to Bob Orsi.
1: So, I want to thank Danielle and Janelle for this um, putting this together. Thank you all for being here as I look out at the ratio of um, empty seats to fill seats, I was telling somebody earlier that I either uh, remember something that Karen said to me or I read this in one of Karen 's works that in a in an apartment in a Haitian apartment in New York where where voodoo is practiced, where the spirits are served, there are more beings resident in the apartment than names. than, than are, there are names on the bell outside. And it seems to me that that's probably true tonight uh, also, that there are probably um, more spirits present than there are than we can see. So uh, Janelle asked me to reflect, as she said, on how Karen's work has influenced me and I will say something about that, of course, because that's very easy. But it would be, I think, um, uh, I can't imagine not also then going on and telling stories about Karen because that's what she did and that's what I want to do. So uh, to reflect on how Karen's work has influenced our own. this is so easy that it really doesn't take much to say. I actually can't think of anything that I've done that I could have done had Karen not done it before me, uh, actually. So with a tremendous courage and humor and poise, uh, for those of you who know, knew her, uh, she broke a long-established boundaries in the study of religion that, I mean, the, the sound of them crashing was very loud as when, when you read Mama Lola, you could just hear them one after the other falling. And, it, I mean, sometimes it's hard, I think, to, if you look, I mean, it's like, you know, Shakespeare, you know, when people first read Shakespeare, they say, wow, there's a lot of quotes in here. Uh, I think when you first read Karen's book, you think, oh, yeah, this is, this is great, but, you know, but actually none of that existed before that book was written. So, you know, the, per, the personal voice, the incredible personal voice that she used to tell those stories the fact that she acknowledged and then acted on the fact that she says powerfully at one point in the book that, um, that she realized at some point that she'd have to bring something of her own life into this study if she were really going to understand the voodoo. And that insight that, that you, a scholar doesn't, that doesn't simply understand something by keeping his or her life back, but that actually that they bring their life into play in the study was an extraordinary moment, I think, in the study of religion. Uh, as Janelle said, the ethnographic turn she um, she pioneered the ethnographic turn again, so uh, so fundamentally and so profoundly that I, I think it's often forgotten, but she did it. and then the incredible poetics, I mean, the risk she took with the poetics of her book, you know to to juxtapose those chapters where there's fiction or or not quite fiction, but i mean she she called it fictionalized accounts, but you know those those gorgeous passages that interspersed. And made it possible to understand what she was saying analytically with a kind of existential depth and immediacy that I don't think otherwise there would have been. So, so yeah, what can I say? There's nothing I've done that I could have done had she not proceeded me. So, I want to say just a couple of things about her, though. I actually met Karen at the AAR. Um, so this uh, in 1979. Am I the oldest? I probably am. This is starting to happen more and more. Um, in 1979 I met her and it was a session on women and religion, I think, that was a long time ago and I didn't have the time to do the archival work. But I do remember that Carol Christ was present, and it's which, suge- which suggests that it might have been actually the goddess. Uh, it might have been a, set, a panel on the goddess. It was my first paper ever. I was a, a, a last year graduate student at Yale, and my first paper ever, I gave it on the Madonna of 115th Street, which had not been published yet. And it was the first time I had launched anything about this in public. And, you know, there was Karen, who was already an established scholar and who was already, and she was unbelievably encouraging and warm to me. Um, she was open and gracious to this much younger colleague. Um, uh, and, and just immediately just immediately opened up her mind and heart in this very powerful way. On the way back to New York, I was living in New York at the time, we sat together on the airplane. These were in the days, I think, when you could move around an airplane and change seats. And we changed seats uh, and spent the whole time talking about my work and her work and I'm sure it was mostly about my work and she listened graciously and gave (laughs) me support and encouragement Um, and that was the beginning of this long friendship. Over the years we took care to see each other regularly and uh, she really taught me, I think, that the, um, the deep joys of an academic friendship. I mean, there's something very special about an academic friendship. There's a kind of meaning of mind and heart that's very powerful, and, uh, and Karen really exemplified that, and she was very open to this, the sort of depths of intellectual and personal engagement. Karen also took me to Mama Lola um, twice um, at a time in my life when my own life was an absolute free fall um, not for the only, not, not the first and only time, but but my life was an absolute free fall and I could not move. I mean, I was just totally paralyzed by uh, stuff. She said, "Well, you know, you should take it to Lola." I said, "All right." So for those of you who a- ever did this, for those of you who had the privilege of doing this, you know that you know you get there at early in the morning, and then you sit around and sit around and sit around and sit around, which is what I did. I mean, we got there at about 10 o'clock in the morning. And I don't think anything actually happened until about 6 o'clock in the evening. And I watched television, I ate, I, I talked to the ch- various children who came in and out. I watched the sun set through the, the Brooklyn sun wane through the Venetian blinds in the living room. I looked at dust motes dancing in the air. And then finally Mama Lola appeared and took me down to her shrine room and she was extraordinarily kind to me. Um, she, she read, she did my cards. You know, we were sitting there knees to knees in that little tiny room in her basement, and uh, she said something that Karen talks about in the book. She said, you know, I needed to heat up my life. I needed to heat things up. I had to get things moving again. And she was, she, it was so striking to me because Lola's response to me was just what my therapist was saying, but she was saying it much more immediately and forcefully, like, come on. See, therapists can't say that because they have a lot more time with you. And let's face it, the longer it goes on, the better it is in some ways. But Lola was, you know, Lola was yelling at me, and uh, but at the same time there was a kindness there, and and I have one more story to tell, and then I want to comment on this kindness. So, so some years later, Karen also took me to see Papagete. I tell this story in the uh, opening, opening, the introduction to Between Heaven and Earth. We went to we went into Brooklyn to, to a a celebration of Papagete. I think it was Halloween. and as I recount in the book me you and know, my mother was at home terrified my mother was there in the Bronx terrified well first of all that I was going into Brooklyn but secondly that I was going to be dealing with voodoo and as I say in the book you know my mother had she my mother was uh, collected these cards of dead jesuits that when she was really upset about anything she would put the cards out on the table and sort of pray to her dead jesuits and so there she was saying you know these people pray to the dead as she flipped card after card of dead Jesuit over. So Karen brings me out, and once again, I wait and I wait and I wait. and this time, it's about 3 o'clock in the morning. It's, I'm in a basement room someplace, very loud drumming, and uh, nothing was happening except that everybody was making fun of me um, in the room, uh, which was fine because was, that was the mood of the evening. And, I, and then Papagetti appears. So Papagetti appears at one point, and Mama Lola's walking around the room, And I'm thinking, oh, God, what's going to happen? What is he going to say to me now? This is horrible. But he didn't say anything. And then he went back into the room. And a few minutes later, Karen comes out and says, you know, this is the most extraordinary thing I've ever seen, but Papa Gede wants to talk to you. And I looked, you know, behind me like, me? Not, no, me? And she said, yeah, yeah. She said, I don't know. So come in. And she came in and she sat down with me. We both knelt down before. uh, Lola was on a little seat. We knelt down. Gede was there. And again, he was very kind. And I've thought over the years that the kindness that I experienced both from Lola and Gede was actually a reflection of uh, Karen's kindness. So I do horribly at these things, I have to say. I'm I'm pleased that I got this far without sobbing my way through this. It's a great loss to the discipline, to her friends. Um, But we take heart we take heart from both voodoo and Catholicism. Uh, we take heart from both voodoo and Catholicism that the dead are not far away, and that the line that separates us from the living, the line that separates the living and the dead is far more porous um, than we think.
2: I too want to thank uh, Jelaine for, for organizing this and uh, I also want to thank Srina Gandhi who uh, invited me to come to give a talk at Kalamazoo College uh, a little while ago and that's when I actually started really thinking about how Karen had shaped my, my own thinking. So I don't know if she's here, but I want to thank her. Uh, so when I was applying to graduate school in 1992, I wanted three things in an advisor. She had to be a woman. I hadn't had many women professors up till then. She had to be a feminist scholar, and she had to be an anthropologically trained scholar of religion. That left me with two people. <laughs> and luckily for me, Karen McCarthy Brown was one of them, and she took me on. Even though my area of interest was not Afro-Caribbean diasporic religions, or for that matter, voodoo, I wanted to look at Mennonite women. I didn't end up doing that, but that's also probably a, a part of Karen's influence on me. Um, from the first class that I took with Karen at Drew, I was hooked. So every class of religion and healing, she would sit at the head of the table and she would take us on a journey. Perhaps she would talk about the limbic system of the brain or the crushing inability of the diagnostic and statistical manual to comprehend possession or the profound and uninterrogated interdependence Required to live as a free and independent New Yorker on the island of Manhattan, so that was a story about herself. She was always, she was, she exemplified the personal is the political and vice versa. So Karen was a storyteller who could listen to other people. I'm going to kind of repeat some of the same, same same things that Bob said. She was a fierce theorist, I would argue. Uh, with compassion, especially for those who live daily with the weight of categories like race, gender, or religion that academics can afford to think of as constructed. Uh, In response to one of Jolene's prompts for our panel, what did Karen's work teach you to see in your own research, I want to consider her work as a scholar and her work as a teacher and her work as a writer. She was a beautiful writer. Uh, All of these aspects of her work taught me, and I would say still teach me today, to see differently. So Karen's scholarship, while strongly uh, critical and openly feminist, was never based on making straw men or women out of other scholars or ideas. And I can't underline the importance of that enough. So for Karen, one of my students told me, just make a fist and then you won't cry. So that's what I'm doing. Thanks, Rebecca. (laughs) Uh, For Karen to study religion uh, required paying attention to how the body remembers in ritualized interactions with the material world and with our webs of relationships with others. And she came to this conclusion through listening to Mama Lola's stories and through participating actively and materially in voodoo communities in New York and Haiti for many years. She also came to this conclusion through reading widely in the historiography of Haiti and of Afro-Caribbean religions. So Karen's attention to the past gave her work much of its power, I would would say. She was an excellent ethnographer who wrote very evocatively of of healing ceremonies that she had experienced um, uh, directly. But she was also concerned to place this ethnographic present in a past of both family memory and colonial violence. And so her her lyrical retellings of Mama Lola's ancestors brought history into the story in a way that was at once very profoundly engaging to read, uh, but was also powerfully revealing of of the legacies of slavery and uh, the centuries of of Haitian resistance to colonial power. So uh, Karen's blend of ethnography and storytelling provoked criticism. There's no doubt about that. Her book, however, has uh, endured as a widely appealing book that is still great to teach with. In fact, that's how they display it down on the table downstairs as great for classes, so you can still go use it for that. There's a really interesting blog by a woman named Gina Athena Ulysses, who I don't know, but maybe some other people do. Um, She is an anthropologist and a performance artist, and she writes about how Mama Lola was a book that kept her in grad school when she was despairing of the racist history of her discipline. Uh, I, I I recommend you go look at it. So when I consider how Karen influenced me in relation to methodology and interdisciplinarity, as you asked us, I have to sum it up with one imperative. Be brave. And then face the consequences. Karen was brave in a number of ways. She moved from philosophy, she was a Kierkegaard scholar, did you know that? She moved from philosophy into anthropology, midway through her graduate career. She moved among religious studies, anthropology and Haitian studies, And as we heard, she was the first woman to earn tenure at Drew University Theological School and she did it by researching Haitian voodoo. That is a challenge, I just have to tell you. She was also brave in the way that she understood research as a process that requires committing oneself in relationships, both in in real-life relationships and in relationships that you put into the page, uh, or onto the page, or into it, whatever. Some of her critics considered Karen naive or or worse for not addressing in detail the politics of a middle-class white anthropologist of religion writing a book about her relationship with an immigrant Haitian voodoo priestess in Brooklyn. Whether or not her book was reflexive in the ways expected at the time, it was clear both from her book and from her life that Karen's relationships with Mama Lola and her family were ongoing and profound. And they were also like all ongoing and profound relationships complicated. Karen taught by example in her relationships with students. Karen had high expectations for her students and did not refrain from hard-nosed criticism when you needed it. And she had a great green pen that she did lots of interesting things with on your papers. Uh, But she also provided a calibrated balance of advice and freedom, critique, and, and genuine enthusiasm as Bob was suggesting. So, midway through my, my PhD, she invited me to join her on a research trip to Benin and Togo uh, on the trail of the West African roots of the Vaudulois-Ézili. Uh, a few years later, she brought dozens of students uh, repeatedly on research trips to um, uh, a, a destination a little closer to home, just 12, 20 miles away from the wealthy bedroom community of Madison when she took them to Newark in the Newark project. With Karen's encouragement, her students, including Peter Savastano and Kathleen Bishop, built relationships and research projects with people and communities in Newark. So her openness to actually bring students into her research, just as she brought you into her research, we could say, Bob, um, remains a model for me as I make my own trips to communities, archives, museums, workshops. I usually try to bring some students along. And I think Karen brought her students on research trips for some of the same reasons I do. Now, we think better, and we ask better questions of ourselves in our research when we're in conversation with our students. On that same trip to Benin, Karen gave me a kind of blessing, I would say. When I shared with her, I I was 26 or 27, something like that, when I shared with her that I was feeling ready to have a child, She greeted the news with a smile and did not try to talk me out of it. She kind of laughed at me, but it was a a, a kind laughter. Um, When she learned that I had become pregnant within days of my return from Benin, she laughed again and attributed my quick conception to the fertile power of Ezelie's springs and shrines that we had been visiting all throughout Benin. My first child was born a couple of weeks after I finished my comprehensive exams. And never did I get the message, from Karen at least, that my new relationship with my baby would get in the way of my thinking. I just want to say that to all the graduate students who are thinking you can't have babies. Go for it. Um, If you want to. You don't have to have them. (laughs)
3: Um,
2: Today, I realize that my interest in storytelling, religion, and public memory is profoundly shaped by what I learned from Karen, even at the end of her life. When Alzheimer's had taken away her ability to speak, the first time—sorry, I'm just gonna do that fist thing a little bit, just a second. The first time that I visited Karen at the nursing home, uh, this is actually a pretty good Karen story. Uh, she ignored me for the first few minutes, but I spoke to her, nevertheless, introducing myself and talking about my family, telling some stories. Eventually, she turned to me locking her clear blue eyes on mine, and she looked for a while, and then she shot out one word. Damn! And she said no other word to me, uh, and I agreed with her. Um, Though Karen could no longer tell stories or swear at the end of her life, she was able to convey the overwhelming importance of caring through conversation in the midst of illness. You could see it in the way that she looked at her husband, Bob, when he sat with her. Every friend of Karen's was deeply grateful to her husband Bob for his extraordinary commitment to her and his willingness to keep talking to her and encouraging others to do the same even when she couldn't answer. Karen, more than any other scholar I know, showed that that the stories that we share with each other are always at the heart of our thinking and our very existence. And I would say that this is true even if these stories do not appear in our writing, or do not appear in our theorizing. So thank you again for the invitation.
4: Thank you. Um, I didn't have the honor of of knowing Karen McCarthy Brown in person, but her co-presence has been with me since I decided to embark on being a feminist researcher and scholar of African diaspora religions. I would like to hear honor the presence of Karen McCarthy Brown with a med- meditation on the magic of her scholarship and its crucial impact to everything that's come after. Karen McCarthy Brown was herself a magical scholar. She brought delight, passion, feminism, critique, theory, and even the spirits themselves to the pages of this book, Mama Lola. There are so many ways in which her research and writing has impacted religious studies, anthropology of religion, African diaspora studies. It would be difficult to enumerate them. But the legacy of creative literary ethnography and intervention and embodiment and history writing and the disruption of the subject teaches us. That academic writing can also be beautiful, even as extremely powerful. For me, Mama Lola was one of the first ethnographic books that I read that I felt like finally respected the practices. It didn't try to give credence or rationalize or objectify, or even present a representational analytic to these vibrant religions. Its texture, its capacity to draw you in and reconcile the spirits and the people and the pages is truly magical even today. As an author and storyteller, Karen McCarthy Brown was humble in her mystical creativity. And as Claudine Michel says in the the new uh, intro, she says that... Karen McCarthy Brown told her that she basically described what Haiti gives to us as researchers, as scholars. And indeed, the spirits, the people, literally jump out of the text. I could not have done my own research without this bold move that she did. And in many ways, the way that she brought her own notion of phenomenology to notions of being in the world, to stimulating writing and bringing them together was really uh, a way to think about oppression and privilege and power through the complexity of voodoo and voodoo spirits. For her, she describes how, quote, Haitian voodoo is not a religion of the empowered and the privileged. Haitians have not had the choice of living with the comfortable fantasies about the forces that structure their lives and determine their fate. She tells us, the oppressed are the most practiced, Analysts of human character and human behavior. And Haitian traditional religion is the repository for wisdom accumulated by a people who have lived through slavery, hunger, disease, repression, corruption, and violence. All excess, she described. We learn from Karen McCarthy Brown that the cosmos themselves are indeed socialized, racialized practices, but that they cannot be com- conflated or collapsed into those modalities and that there's so much more texture to what we can do, what we can bring together as scholars. I would like to end with the story that Karen McCarthy Brown describes when Mama Lola's son, William, was arrested. She describes how she goes to the courthouse with Lola and, and her daughter, Maggie, and as they're in the courthouse, they're negotiating with the attorney and trying to figure out what to do. And, um, and I'm gonna just read it because I think it's a, it's a wonderful element to, um, to what she gives to us and what she will, and what we can also bring to, to her presence. She said, the arraignment happened quickly. The Legal Aid Society had appointed an attorney who was soothing but not very interested in giving or receiving information. He rushed into the courtroom only minutes before William's case was called. After shaking hands all around, the attorney drew us outside for a hasty consultation. When Maggie launched into a stream of explanations and questions, he hushed her with a question of his own. Did any of you know the woman whose purse was stolen? What was her name again? I asked, catching Maggie's eye and winking. Pointer, he said. Laura Pointer. Back in the courtroom, I took out the envelope from a telephone bill received that morning. I wrote, Laura Pointer, beneath the names of the judge and the arresting officers folded the envelope and handed it to Maggie, accessory to magic. <laughs> I wanna leave us with the ways in which her magical work inspired not only me but I think many people to think about the spirits and the energies, the deities, the practitioners, the folding of envelopes, the, the, the writing of names, are all made into moments where we, in the process of reliving the book that is Mama Lola, are also accessory to Karen McCarthy Brown's magic. Thank you.
5: I'd like to call on the ancestors to open the gate to allow me to speak. I'd like to call on Karen to bless all of us here in Haiti and beyond. I was very close to Karen Brown and to Mama Lola. And um, Aisha mentioned in the preface of the third edition that I talked about Karen's gift when she told me on September 12, 2009, after the dementia had already basically prevented her from communicating in, in academic term, and she called me and she told me that I finally figured out that the book is about what Haiti gives to us. I felt that I was given this last gift from Karen that I had to share with the world and it was a tremendous honor, but a tremendous challenge also. As my colleagues shared on the panel, um, it's very obvious how Karen pushed the boundaries uh, in the academy, bravely and with vision. She challenged the objectivity that for centuries had ostracized indigenous knowledge uh, modes, modes of being and ways of thinking that did not fit the Western norms. That objectivity that kept at bay, at the periphery, women, but also those whose thoughts, ideas, and views, and values were seen as inferior because they did not control uh, capital, resources, and canons. I will frame my remarks around the three editions of the book. And as was mentioned, Gina Ulysse, my dear friend, said that the book kept her in graduate school. For me, the book changed my career. I had studied voodoo in Haiti, but went to graduate school to do comparative education work. But when I read Mama Lola and uh, here, you'll remember that that the otherworldly stare of the doll that was on the cover but it was also an initiation of an entire generation of scholars into Vodou into the religious knowledge of Haitians as a legitimate field of inquiry she opened doors at the level of the American Academy of Religion Uh, she could not revert totally the anthropological gaze but certainly shifted it She taught us that the Haitian imaginary, the Haitian ethos differs uh, from the Western ways in ways that are crucial and profound, but nonetheless solid and worthy. And for me in particular, in terms of impact, I had been researching morality, ethics, and values in education. And I remember reading uh, Antonio Cortez's books on ethnic ethics. And um, that quote, uh, would you steal for your dog? And the answer was yes, if it were the only friend that I had. Um, and I was looking for this contextual morality that came from the people, and I was able to find it in that book. And basically, as a result of this, I became a scholar looking at moral morality and ethics in Haitian voodoo, and I published my first book in Haiti that really um, unpacked Uh, The the fact that Vodou as a live religion, what Karen had described in her book, uh, provided a type of moral compass for practitioners and uh, a a morality uh, pathway, a guide that uh, consulted uh, with the ancestors that, that also encouraged the personal to sustain the collective. And um, the fact that our personhood is defined by the same collective and how sh- we encourage community to heal and maintain positive relationship in their communities. Um, we-, we become because they are. Um, so that's the, the second, um, that-, that was the first work that came out out of this um, first book for me. And uh, that's also when I reached out and met her and met Mama Lola. I wanna mention the impact of these two women on the 1995 um, sacred arts exhibit that was organized by Don Constantino In Los Angeles, and that circulated. and I do want to acknowledge Patrick Polk, uh, who's right here with us in the audience. Karen's work also influenced the 1997 creation of Kosamba, the Congress of Santa Barbara, a scholarly association for the Congress, for the study of Haitian voodoo. And we just had um, our last conference in Montreal, Canada, just a month ago. In terms of the second edition, Karen wrote about the problem of voices and how that troubled her. And that she wanted every single word, uh, every single voice to be heard in that book. Uh, Her as the scholar, the the initiate, the white woman, uh, the privileged individual who had entered this other world, but also the multiple voices of Mama Lola um, as a feminist from her own platform. And I wrote an essay about the multiple voices of Karen and Mama Lola that merged into this uh, very powerful articulation of feminist intervention that merge those often dissonant voices of diasporic um, feminism with Western feminism. It also um, reveals Karen's positioning vis-à-vis the other and what it meant to be the other. And in terms of ethics, she taught us quite a bit about giving back and that the project is not over because the research is completed. So she was a, a, a model in that way. So she placed the nexus of learning uh, in terms of those values within uh, Haiti and um, really helped restore respect for Haiti uh, in terms of those teachings about being human that are so essential. And with the third edition, uh, here you see Mama Lola on, in front of her mother's altar. There's a return because when Karen had gotten sick, she had invited me to co-write with her the preface of the third edition, but she became too ill to do so. And it, you know I, I was basically honored with that privilege uh, to do that. But I was even more troubled than Karen with the question of voice, because you had this twinness between her and Mama Lola, how they had merged their scholarship in that unbreakable bond of love and loyalty, and how was I to insert a third voice into that conversation. And in the introduction, I wrote that the twins had spoken and revealed the mysteries of Vodou, and I I had been requested as Dosa, the one born after the twins, to communicate their words to the world and how obedient to the value of service that we know to be part of Vodou, how the smallest of the trio speak. And I um, write about how I was really, uh, I had a hard time writing that introduction and that finally it did not really come out until the Haitian earthquake and I understood that the spirits had made me wait so that the preface could become a eulogy for the 300,000 people that passed away in the earthquake. And um, I will say um, in conclusion that um, this, I was struggling, it's like, what am I gonna talk about? And when Karen came out of this dementia and told me, I finally figured out what the book is about. It's about what Haiti gives to us. And she didn't say what Haiti gave to us because then that would be another conversation. So I understood, and this is a quote um, that I took from, from the book, that it was time for Western hegemonic society that may indeed um, have to realize that they have something to learn about being human from non-Western society. And that's what I try to impact in the conclusion. And I um, thank Karen for creating that space for voices that historically have not been the ones to narrate religious experiences. And um, I'll stop there. Thank you.
0: Thank you to our panelists for sharing your thoughts and from various different perspectives. I want to open let me, it.
5: Let me say something before, just as people are leaving. Excuse me. Uh, the Kossamba, the, the, Center, uh, the Congress of Santa Barbara is trying to fulfill a dream of Karen, which is to translate Mama Lola in French and Creole. And we are well on our way. But we are halfway with the funds that we need to raise to be able to see this dream fulfilled and to put the book in the hand of the Haitian people. The, the academy has read the book, but not Haitians. So please, if you can contribute or if you are able to contribute, um, you know, take a flyer from the young scholar helping us out.
0: Thank you, thank you for that. Yeah, we want to open it up to uh, the audience to participate now. And this session is being recorded. And if you could please step up to the microphone here uh, and engage uh, with our panelists and and uh, or you know uh, talk about your own engagement with Karen's work, you can do that.
3: Good evening. I'm Linda Thomas. I teach at the Lutheran School of Theology in Chicago and had the distinct honor of meeting Karen McCarthy Brown when I was a graduate student at the American University in uh, Washington, D.C. I've always been in theological education, and so Karen helped me to negotiate what it meant to do the study of the anthropology of religion and at the same time be situated in a theological school. She was doing it herself, after all. And as I took on the study of indigenous religion in South Africa, looking at uh, African indigenous religion, particularly asking the question, how do black South Africans trapped in systems that create uh, poverty, she stood alongside me. And um, Mama Lola became a sacred text that guided my work, and Karen became a guide for me to talk to along my journey to finish my work. When I did graduate and went back to Cape Town, South Africa to continue to write my book, I was so deeply honored when Karen emailed me or called me or something like that to say Uh, I would like for you to fill in for me when I go on sabbatical. And uh, I was uh, young, untenured, and I said, I can't possibly do that because I've been on a year away already from my school. At that time, Isle of School of Theology. And Karen became the teacher again. She said, if you do this, this will bring honor to your institution. (laughs) I said, oh, so I then uh, called the dean at uh, I School of Theology and, of course, uh, they uh, made that possible. And so I went to Drew for a semester and had the honor of uh, teaching African religion and the anthropology of religion. So Karen not only helped me to uh, get my work done, uh, theoretically, but she also opened a way for me to begin to get my foot into uh, the profession. And for that, I am exceedingly thankful and just want to say thank you for the organizers of the panel uh, and for allowing those of us who knew her to have a word to say in her honor. Thank you.
6: My name is Charles Selangat. I was both a colleague and a student of Karen. I also did a year as a sabbatical, and I sat on her <laughs> desk and I was a good friend of hers. I I think I want to say that Karen was a kind of Abrahamic figure. The Bible speaks of Abraham as ger Mochem, that he, he was Abraham was both a sojourner and a stranger in his environment and I think Karen who I loved very much and uh, respected and uh, had a mutual influence was a stranger in the academy and was a stranger in Drew and went through a lot of difficulty on the other hand she was a, a pioneer And the pioneer quality was another Abrahamic element. She did a lot of chesed. I cannot tell you the students she influenced and the space she gave to so many people without reward, without needing to do it from the bottom of her heart. Uh, The Bible, the the medrash, the... Jewish commentary speak about Abraham having a tent where the doors were open on all sides. I can tell you, her door was always open to students. And that was something very unique and to be honest with you, that also made her a stranger and different than the other colleagues. So in memory, her uh, her memory should be a blessing for all of us, but I want to emphasize the uh, the very human, the very, what once was called religious moral and humane aspects that I think that's why we are here not only for the scholarship and, and that I just say one word if I can and I'll stop I, I was both a student and a colleague and when I was writing uh, a book on uh, cults Karen many times told me bring yourself into it I could only do it in one chapter And it took me 20 or 30 years later when I just did a book on the Israeli settlements to really bring myself into the study. It took me 30 years because I thought, I can't really follow that. I I don't want to be a stranger and a sojourner. I didn't have her courage. I think we could learn from her courage and her kindness. Thank you.
7: I'm Dorothy Austin. I've known Karen for mm, 40 years, long time. One day she called me up and she said, Nelson Thayer has died. And he's the one who does psych and religion. And um, I need you. I said, "You need me." She said, "Yeah. Here's the problem. Um, we haven't. We have nobody now in psych and religion." Oh, and I, I said, oh, "I'm sorry. I'm sorry." We talked, and then she said. I at the, at that time I was um te- teaching at Harvard. Um she said, uh, "Listen, you could come down just one day, a week. Come down on Thursday night and teach on Friday and um I'll give you a good night, sleigh, and uh, dinner. I said, Karen, this is crazy. I'm, I'm full-time, and I'm in Cambridge, and running back and back forth. She said, well, just do it for a couple of weeks, then <laughs> ten years. She said, well, every Thursday, we'll go out to something, maybe to see a movie or a play or something, and we'll sleep in your loft with Little Brown. Does anybody anybody know know Little Brown? Yes, the cat. Ah, I loved her. She was the best. So smart. So much fun. Full of conscience. Doing all the right things. A beam. Uh, I miss her so much. Um, Diana, come up here and help me. No, I'll just, I'll talk right here. But it's so
8: wonderful to be here with this picture. <laughs> of Karen on yeah. both sides with a sense of presence. Yeah. I think, uh, I'd like yeah. to just say one word about what a wonderful teacher she was. Yeah. Because I... Uh, well, both Dorothy and I knew her when she came for a year. I don't even remember how many years, but uh, Harvard Divinity School. No, oh. Karen came to us. You went to her for ten. I mean, she stole my spouse for ten years. But uh, but it was um, but it was before PowerPoint. I will say that. Yeah. And she had the ability to work with uh, slides and to bring yeah. Haiti into yeah. the lecture hall in such a vivid and beautiful, beautiful way. And, um, and so that was point number one. But when she talked about other things, because her, her world kept evolving, along with Dorothy and, and Pamela and others who worked yeah. on the Newark Project. Yeah. But I think the last time I heard her do a, 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 a really wrenching talk was uh, when she was at the uh, African and African-American studies program at uh, Harvard in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, and she was working on and gave a very powerful talk on the brutalization of Abner Louima Mm -hmm. in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. And it it was just so fitting. And I will say one other thing, because it is here in the AAR, but... The year that I was uh, president of the AAR, one of the privileges that you have is to invite um, well various speakers for Mm -hmm. plenary sessions, but it was the custom to invite someone from within the academy whose work that you admired to deliver a plenary address. And when I thought of all the people in the academy whose work I admired, Karen was certainly yeah. the person I wanted to do this, and so I invited her and didn 't think much more of it, and she was working away on it, I guess, um, but this was sort of at the beginning of her illness yeah. and by the time I think many of you or some of you might remember this here you, Linda, do you remember that. I mean it was yeah. because it was a plenary hall, and yeah. because Karen was talking, it was jam packed it was full yeah, there were lots of people mm-hmm. and um, I knew the night before that she was still sort of working on it, and those of us who are academics, you know that night before something you're <laughs> always sort of turning away at <laughs> it, trying to uh, you know finish it etc and it wasn 't until she got up to talk that I realized that uh, no, she could no, not yeah, yeah. And, and I had no way of knowing really i i, I didn 't get clues from drew or anything I felt yeah. so sorry, really, yeah. because I think that was her, um, that was the last time she appeared at the American Academy of Religion. It was in 2006. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you know, it was okay. I mean, and we had a bit of a dialogue and whatnot. But, uh, I mean, she could have simply stood up and read any one of 15 of her greatest talks. It would have been yes. fine. Yeah. But um, Dorothy and I have known Karen, very closely over the years, yeah. and spent time uh, as often as we could get to Pennsylvania where she, when she was in the nursing home and there was still some of that vibrancy and beauty, but there was a really I think many people do know that there was a wonderful um, sort of memorial service at uh, her husband bob 's place, that a place that they had shared in New Jersey yeah. last. Uh, late may early june um all uh, maggie and uh, yeah, you know all the people yeah. from brooklyn you know with big vans full of food and yes, drums yeah, and yeah. uh uh whiskey and all the things that went <laughs> Everything. for making a wonderful <laughs> afternoon of it yeah, and yeah. um and i will say along with all of you we just miss her she yeah. was such a special and luminous colleague yeah. so thank you all for organizing she was the this
9: best. my name is Ennis Edmonds and I'm professor of religion at uh, religious studies at Kenyon College Um, I took my graduate studies at Drew University and Karen Brown was my dissertation advisor so I want to stand up this evening and um, testify to her brilliance (laughs) and to her graciousness. And um, I guess I could tell some stories, but I I, I remember, you know, I was just fresh from Jamaica. Um, I had been teaching in a Bible college for four years, and I decided I wanted to go to graduate school. I went to Drew. One of my first classes was Karen's class, um, Anthropology and Sociology of Religion. And the first assignment was an assignment on um, for, um, forms of elementary, what's, what's their kind of book called again? <laughs> elementary forms, <laughs> okay? And um, I wrote my paperman so beautifully, I thought, and stuff. And when I got it back, that green pen was all over it. <laughs> and it was a C. And I'm like, I have never seen this in. 15 years, a C, okay? Anyway, I did end up getting an A minus in the class, partly because I'm stubborn. I refused to rewrite a paper. <laughs> if I had rewritten it, I probably would have gotten an A. But I became really um, very, very, very close to her. I served as her um, research assistant at one time. And um, I was always I, I was always just so taken by her lectures uh, by her presentations in class, I can still hear her voice saying, um, you know, religion is where the question why stops. You know, why should I eat my broccoli? Because it's good for you. Why? Uh, because God says so. You know? <laughs> and then somebody mentioned her talk about her, her her reference to body memory and so on. And, I mean, that really resonated with me as somebody... Um, from the Caribbean, people carrying stuff on their heads and all the stuff that came over from Africa was, was and, and people brought it with their bodies. You know, There were no books and stuff like that for them to do that. But I think most of all, um, she really taught me an appreciation for the vernacular, that ordinary people have thoughts, that ordinary people have their own analysis of the structures um, in which they live. And um, when she talks about those things, I can remember, um, you know, I used to listen to the older men in the community where I grew up in Jamaica. And one of the things I always remember, you know, they would listen to the radio and some report would be made about some politician who's doing some crazy stuff. And they would say, huh, and they call us illiterate. And um, so Karen Brown um, just kind of bring me back to those things and to make me to make me understand the value of vernacular thought and vernacular culture and vernacular expression and how ordinary common people structure their lives and structure their understanding of the world. And I, um, you know, I, I grieve with those who grieve and um, I, I celebrate her life and her contribution. To, to, to the academy, but more so to the people around her. Thank you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so I'm
10: Jack Hawley, um, I teach in New York and I've known Karen since we were undergraduates together. Um, so thank you all, uh, okay. Um, Really, I thought I was going to be okay. It's kind of like you, Pat, but it hasn't worked. Um, Thank you all. Uh, You all have uh, spoken about Karen's great strengths, and those strengths are uh, absolutely indubitable. But I want just to... I should never have come off. I just want to say that I think she had a way of... um, communicating the fact that, you know, despite the privilege which she recognized in her position, that there was a huge uh, undercurrent of struggle and development that she managed to convey to us uh, as she spoke. Um, You know, Bob, you talked about how she always felt she was uh, ready and behind you and there before you. I've had that feeling too, but at the same time, she communicated the fact that the way that she got there was not just by getting there, but by having worked through, worked at, trying to make her way through struggles that perhaps she knew about herself in a way that no one else knew. mean, she was there to um, address those first. You spoke about the porousness of the connection between uh, the living and the dead as you said that. I'm going to really remember this. And she said that. I could hear her voice. And to me, her voice was, but this is just about her and me. She, it was a kind of, I don't know how to characterize it. Uh, I don't know what word to put to it. But would it be a kind of, there would be an element of pleading in it. She would say, oh, come on, Jack. You know, And it, it wasn't as if, it wasn't just the fact that she had managed to get through something that I hadn't, though that was probably true, but that she thought, you know, if I just listened harder or managed to get myself together or see the big picture, I could do it. So, what a fabulous person. I was there in 1976. I'm looking at AAR. It was there in 1976. It was in St. Louis. Um, We were both on a panel on pilgrimage, actually. And uh, it it was certainly my first. I don't know whether it was hers. She may have been there the year before, 76. But she loved the fact that we were doing things from different cultural areas. For her, of course, it was about Haiti. For me, it was about India. For others, someplace else. But she loved the fact that we were just mixing it up together. And then, of course, I was there for uh, that last big AAR talk. There are many things to remember about that. What I remember is how forcefully she was, for all of her difficulties in putting that together, how forcefully she wanted to speak about how ridiculous it was that George Bush, George W. Bush, you know, had dressed up in this costume to appear on some sort of, uh, you know, aircraft carrier or something, you know, when he's come in, he's going to save it. She just thought that was totally ridiculous and everybody ought to know that this is not what masculinity is. I mean, you know, who could do that? And then the other thing I remember from that is how grateful she was knowing her own situation at that moment, a new moment of struggle, how terrifically um, grateful she was the, for the invitation It gave her a chance to say to all of us who were there, you're my friends, thank you for supporting me. So we do.
5: Thank you so much for those commentaries. And I remember about this presentation when she told me, Claudine, I'm losing my words. (laughs)
2: When I was saying earlier that I um, had started, uh, thanks to um, Srina Gandhi's invitation, started thinking about Karen's work, um, I actually uh, went back to read some of her work, and she wrote a lot about remembering and forgetting, systematic remembering, systematic forgetting, um, which uh, I think really actually helped me um, Think of how what it what it meant to continue to relate to her um, when she had lost her words, right? Because the the body does remember, and uh, so even in the context of uh, of having uh, Alzheimer's and you know, being basically immobile, uh, she was still teaching me, <laughs> um, which I think is actually something. Um, she 's a very special person, and was it 's it's, it's important that you know it was she who was teaching me because of our relationship but I think that 's that's something we can take to any uh relationship in which we don 't think we understand another person or that they can 't communicate to us. She was still um we actually need to, to uh, treat each other with dignity and respect and uh, keep telling each other stories even when we don't necessarily think that we can uh, can hear each other. So I don't know if that makes sense, but she's a, she was a theorist of, of memory uh, and, and forgetting um, even until her uh, last days, I would say.
5: Our dear okay. organizer who so kindly put this panel together. Told me to share with you because I shared that with her that I'm wearing Karen shawl. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I was thinking of that moment in the book. I mean, I've taught that book so many times. i you pull. might need <laughs> that. Yeah. I've taught that book so many times, I virtually have it memorized, but I'm sure you remember this, Pamela, the scene in the book where uh, she's talking about women who lose their voice and all they can say is da, 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 and uh, yeah, I mean, she knew that communication happened in all kinds of ways and that sometimes sometimes the failure to speak was a very powerful form of communication, so I'm not surprised that she felt that.
5: Again, I want to ask you for your support um, to try to get those translations done. And again, there are flyers, but if not, cosamba.org to the University of California, Santa Barbara, we've established a tax-deductible account. So please help us get Karen's words in the hands of the Haitian people. And thank you, Karen, for Haiti and for the love that you've shared with humanity.
0: Thank you, everyone, for coming. I wish we had some clarin that we could uh, (laughs) drink together (laughs) to celebrate. Uh, What what a life, you know, what a life uh, this was. And uh, uh, thank you, everyone, for participating.